Hey, yeah, South Africa. Welcome to another episode of Farmers Inside Track Weekend, powered by Meadow Feeds. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu, the manager for audience and engagement at Foodform Zanzi. Now, many listeners reached out for further information on dry cow management. So we hooked up with Joubert Nolter, the National Technical Manager for Ruminants at Meadowfeeds, to explain the feed cycle of these cows. But first, now the cost of living has skyrocketed and the ripple effect on Mzanzi's farmers is heartbreaking. Two agricultural economists, Konsei Moraba and Karabo Takadi, calculate that the prices of insecticides, fertilizer and herbicides rose by more than 50% during the last planting season. This week, we hear what the AgriDio had to say on their popular YouTube channel called Food for Thought with Kansen Karabo. They chat to fellow agricultural economist and input analyst Ikacheng Maduleka from Grain Essay. Apart from her passion, which is international trade, Ikacheng is actually monitoring movements of fertilizers, you know, what's happening with the inputs, are farmers being squeezed, are farmers happy, yay, nay, things like that. Which brings us to today's topic. We'll be talking all things inputs, given what has been happening in the global and domestic market over the past year and continuing. We always see on the news to say inputs costs are going higher and higher. So I would like to just welcome you, Ikacheng. Please just paint a picture of where we are in terms of input costs. So what's happening in terms of inputs, it has basically been a perfect storm brewing. And I'm going to take you guys back to 2020. So when COVID hit, we had a situation where a lot of borders had to be closed. And China, being the biggest producer of most of the agrochemicals, as well as fertilizers, was basically shut to the world. This created a bit of a backlog when it comes to supply of fertilizer as well as agrochemicals. And then fast forward to 2021, we had a situation where China had a problem when it came to flooding, where they basically had a lot of rain damage and had to close down a lot of their manufacturing plants. And then there was also a situation or actually a recent situation where they didn't have enough power supply. So basically, they had to ration power supply between different manufacturers. And that also created a bit of a lag in terms of production. This is a situation where the rest of the world is waiting. There's increased demand in terms of production. And we, as a small drop in the ocean, are basically at a disadvantage. South Africa imports 80 plus percent of fertilizer as well as our agrochemicals. Now you can imagine we are a price taker. And producers can't come to a situation where they actually shortchange themselves when it comes to using fertilizer or chemicals. They basically need to buy as much as they need at whatever high price. So you can imagine now that this creates an issue where their margins are being squeezed. So I like what you're talking about with the cost squeeze and producers having to either decide are they buying a spray program or fertilizer or just waiting and hoping that the yields will just realize, right? So from what I understand from what I've read, I know that glyphosate is one of the main ingredients that's really been in shortage. It's also the highest one that has been demanded. And that actually forms part as a base for weed control, right? And then you also get the glufosinate on the other hand, which is also used during post-emergence, especially in soybeans. So does this relate to the lowest soybean yields or production that is estimated perhaps for this season? that maybe producers were not able to acquire 
glufosinate and therefore that's why we see the potential 4% decrease in production for the 2021-2022 season. Could that be? So at the moment, we can't really tell what the issue is. So remember, we had a problem with a bit of flooding. We have now a problem with a bit of a shortage when it comes to agrochemicals like your glyphosate. So producers had to basically look for alternatives Mm -hmm. that they could use in the market. But what I could understand is that in as much as there was a bit of a shortage and there was a bit of a high price, producers were still able to get their hands on these resources. So I can't say for sure at the moment if that would have an impact in terms of our yields or not. That we can only actually see once we realize our yield potential. So now we know in terms of maize and other grains, you know, there's a platform on JSC suffix where you can go and head your price and protect yourself against risks and stuff like that. So in terms of fertilizer and other inputs, you know, is there such a tool for farmers to just make sure that they actually safe, their mm-hmm. risk is low, and then they can actually secure the inputs at a lower cost? So this is how the market or the industry is structured. Producers don't necessarily buy directly from the manufacturer overseas. So you have your big companies that actually buy. Then these guys will sell to your representatives that will then sell to the producers. So this creates a bit of a a distance between what a producer can and can't do. And basically, in terms of hedging, you can just imagine, how do you hedge something that you get from someone who gets it from another person? Whereas with suffix, you can basically do it yourself or get mm-hmm. a broker, and that's basically a short chain. In terms of hedging against this, because it's not on our local market, it creates a big issue. As I said to you guys, mm-hmm. we import quite a lot. And even in the market or in the international market, there's a lot of factors that affect supply and demand. So we don't have a situation where you can actually hedge. So if your oil price goes up, your fertilizer and your agrochemicals go up. If you don't have enough natural gas, then your fertilizers go up. So there's a lot of um, dynamics at play that you basically have no control over, unlike when you can hedge against whether your forex or your grains. I mean, the world has really been ablaze recently, Ika. You spoke about oil prices. I mean, the average February Brent crude prices were around $98 per Mm. barrel, right? And this week, it was about $112 per barrel. Like, because of what's happening in the world with Ukraine and Russia and the sanctions, basically, we are afraid for further supply disruptions and the price is just going up and up. And like you said, it's going to affect the input prices. But also another thing is Russia is one of the leading fertilizer exporter, right? It's quite a big one, yes. So that is definitely going to add even further pressure on the prices for this season. I'm sure you've been talking to your producers. What is their feel? How do they think they can mitigate this? Or like you said, they're just going to take the price. Like, is there anything that the industry can do for them? Unfortunately, there's not much we can do, especially when it comes to geopolitics. It's basically a wait and see kind of scenario. Fortunately, for the summer grain producers, they are done planting. But now it's actually time for the winter grain to start planting. They're in a situation where it's almost April. They need to start. And if inputs go up this high, then what do they do? Now it means a producer needs to sit down and actually readjust his production plans to say, Mm -hmm. can I actually afford to do this? Do I cut down on some stuff? What do I actually do? It's the reality of the situation. And basically he needs to sit down and calculate if he'll make it or not. 
what we can do is just give guidance in terms of okay this is what the price is doing how do you go about this we actually advise our producers to buy as early as possible their inputs producers who manage to buy will probably buy like late december or ready for april planting mm. and those guys would be the guys that actually get a bit of a reprieve in terms of what is happening at the moment Thanks to the Agridio, Kansai Maraba and Karabotakadi. For the full interview check out their Food for Thought channel on YouTube. Now, for that promised follow-up interview on dry cow management. Jobert Nolter, the National Technical Manager for Ruminants at Meadow Feeds, joins us to explain the feed cycle of dry cows and specifically how balancing nutrients during this period can cut the cost for farmers. Dr. Nolte, welcome back and it's great to have you with us again. Hi Dawn and good day to all the listeners out there. Now maybe we can just start by giving a short recap of what we spoke about before and then what we can specifically focus on today. So last time we spoke about defining what the dry period is and why the cow needs that and then we also looked at the two distinct phases of the dry periods, the so-called far-off dry cows and the close-up cows and we touched on the different requirements that they have and that's why we feed them differently and care for them differently in those two phases. Mm-hmm. And this week we're specifically talking about cow comfort for dry cows. We're going to focus a little bit about the feed, all of that technical aspects as well. So, let's start with that. What is cow comfort for dry cows all about? In simple terms, when cows are not happy, they just won't perform and that's probably true for any species. So what we mean when we refer to cow comfort is actually managing the environment where the cow stays so that she is comfortable to have access to good resting space when she needs to rest but also access to food and access to water. So let's start with what we mean with water. Cows drink a lot of water. First of all is make sure that the water is clean, make sure that there's enough water, so both drinking space and flow of the water, and then don't give them warm water. Ensure that the water that flows into the troughs are cold and cool and clean because we know water intake is directly correlated to feed intake. If they don't drink water, they won't eat, and obviously the consequences then are obvious. So that's the first thing. make sure that they have easy access to good quality cold clean drinking water and then secondly we need to provide a well balanced diet to them and ensure that they have enough what we call bunk space or feed bunk space so if you push 100 cows into a 10 meter trough bunk space they they just won't eat the dominant cows will eat and the rest of the cows will stand and look at them So it is important to manage the space that you provide and what typically happens is that as dairies grow bigger and bigger they sometimes a little bit slow to ensure that their facilities keep up with the cow numbers and it's very easy to overstock but when you overstock the dominant cows will have proper access to the food while the other cows will struggle to get to it and when they do get to it the dominant cows have probably selected all the proper nutrients out of it and left the less dominant cows with the inferior stuff because we try to manipulate diets so that cows do not sort the diets remember these diets are not pelleted so we need that long fiber for rumen health but they always sort 
at least they try their utmost to sort whatever is more palatable. And then the weaker cows in the group will not have access to the proper food. It seems like a lot goes into the selection of the type of feed. And there's so many elements that goes in terms of the overall well-being and health of this dry cow. Where does this expert knowledge come from? I know you're an expert in your field, but how do farmers really get the support and this kind of support that they need? Nutrition is a very wide field. And if you ask me to formulate a certain diet for you, I can probably give you 10 options that will analyze identical in terms of protein and fiber levels, etc., etc. But the diets will be different because we can utilize different ingredients to get to that. That's actually just a part of the answer. Qualified and experienced nutritionists need knowledge of a much wider field. We are sometimes challenged with genetic inputs, so you have to have a a certain understanding of that. We certainly have to understand the impact of the environment that I just referred to, something like heat stress. I mean, we can talk for a day about heat stress and the impact of that. And while I'm touching on that, I need to bring this up. Because dry cows are not producing milk, in many cases, when they exit the parlor, they're not cared for very well. And they put in a pen somewhere and they stand in the sun and it's hot and it's uncomfortable for them. So when cows are hot, they obviously don't want to lie down and rest. They don't eat well and they don't drink well. It is important to look after these cows very well. And if you can, supply shade to them and cool them down. Recently, a lot of research has been conducted in this field. And we've seen that dry cows that are subjected to heat stress not only produce less milk in the ensuing lactation, but they also have in utero heat stress that impacts on the production of their calves. So if they have heifer calves that come into lactation two years from the date when they're born, they will also produce less milk, have a weaker immune system because that heat stress impacts on the exchange of nutrients and oxygen across the placenta. So it's very important to not forget about them but look after them very well. They are late pregnant and the way you treat them in this dry period will have an impact on how those cows perform in the ensuing lactation but also what the female progeny will do in their lifetime production. Let's talk about the feeding of dry cows. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Remember in the first episode we touched on nutrition. But nutrition is a very wide field. So it's not only about the nutrients, but it's also about managing the intestinal tract of the cow so that it's healthy. It's a very large, let's call it, it's not one organ, but let's call it, it's a large chunk of what happens inside the cow. And we have to ensure that the intestinal tract is in a good condition. So this period is a phase for us where we have 60 days where you could feed the cow a lower density diet so that possible damage that she incurred during the previous lactation can be repaired in the digestive tract. Then you also focus on fiber levels and not only fiber but the different components of fiber, how much NDF and ADF and those fractions that we look at we want in the diet because the fiber content of the diet impact on the rumen motility. So there we want to feed coarse fiber, if I can put it that way, and get enough of them into the cow so that the rumen can work and sort of repair muscle tone. 
a big challenge to us because margins are so thin in the dairy business, especially at the moment. We really try and feed these cows for the two months when they're not producing milk as cheaply as possible. But we can't feed them an inferior diet. When you increase the bulkiness of the diet, you still have to focus on palatability so that you ensure you achieve dry matter intake targets. Why is dry matter intake important for us? It is important because we know that, especially in the steam-up phase, dry matter intake in the three weeks prior to calving is correlated to dry matter intake after calving. And post-calving, it's important to keep in mind that if she eats better and she eats more, she'll produce more milk. Because of that correlation, we really focus on balancing all the nutrients with the costs and achieve the dry matter intake targets. It's also important to remember that the best time to ensure that the cow calf in the right condition is to manage that actually is in the late lactating period. Why? Because she's still producing milk and you're earning an income from her. When she's dried off, it's just a cost. So if you have to repair damage in a phase when she's not generating income, it can be very expensive. You also sit with a challenge that the fetus grow at about 70% or more in that last two months. So if you push nutrients too hard, you can have calving problems with calves that are too big at calving, and you can imagine what problems flow from that. The final point I want to make here is that any nutritionist can formulate a load of different diets, but we try to work with what is readily available in a certain area because of cost. We have to be wary of cost always, but we have to do what is right for the cow because this is the preparation for the next lactation. I think the most important thing that I want to maybe highlight as we wrap up and go more to our closing points is that there's always the importance of finding a balance. It's not just about making your profit at the end of the day. You need to take care of your animals. With expert advice, it's important to just to listen and to learn and to practice the best way possible to keep a healthy cow. I think that's sort of the bottom line. If you look after your animals and you ensure that they're happy and well looked after, they look after you. Care for them and then the rest will sort of happen. As a farmer, you always have to look at cost. That's your mandate to manage your business, but not at the expense of the animals that you care for. I think that's a very important point. And then as we're closing off, what are the other aspects that farmers should really be looking at? Considering everything that you've spoken about and also looking to the next discussion that I think Vienna will also be joining us for for the rest of the campaign. We've discussed a lot of things and I'm going to try and wrap this up in a couple of bullet points if I could put it that way. So firstly, remember that the cow, once she exits lactation and she's dried, she goes through a number of physiological changes. That is high risk. First of all, she needs to stop lactation. Then she needs to be in a steady state. And then she really starts lactation again, all in about 60 days. So the mammary gland has to be remodeled, if I can put it that way. But at the same time, we also have to manage and transition the digestive system from a high-density lactating diet to a high-fiber, low-density diet, and then into a transition diet and back to a lactation diet. And don't forget that calving is the most stressful event in the cow's life. This in itself is a high-risk period. 
So we really try and focus on positioning the cow so that she calves down in the right condition with a strong immune system so that we can position her to battle all the bacteria and bad events that could take place in that period. Then I've referred to this a couple of minutes ago, but you have to ensure that the cows are dried in the right condition. Manage them in the last 60 to 90 days of their lactation period to achieve a condition score of 3.3 to 3.5 when you turn them dry. If they're too thin, risk for metabolic issues are low, but they just won't peak. So thin cows don't milk. If they're too fat, you run high risk of metabolic issues in that three, four weeks immediately post-calving, and then they also won't milk. But if you can get them to calve down in the right condition and you hit the targets of dry matter intake with the right nutrients pre-calving and immediately post-calving, you've got a, a healthy cow with a strong immune system that will milk well and peak well at about 60 to 80 days in milk. And then if she peaks well, she's set for the lactation and she'll produce well. Finally, I need to say that a couple of objectives are that you have to manage the environment properly. Make sure that she's comfortable, she's got access to good food, good water, quality resting place and shade, optimize dry matter intake of a well-balanced diet, not only in terms of nutrient composition, but also in how the diet is prepared and presented, and in terms of palatability. Do everything you can make sure she's got a strong immune system and minimize every single thing you can think of that could be a stress factor to her. And finally, remember that the lactation actually starts when you turn the cow dry, not when she calves. Thank you so much, Hubert uh, I think it's always great chatting to you on Pharmacy Inside Track. You have so much knowledge to share. And I'm sure the aspiring dairy farmers out there and the existing ones have a lot of checks and balances to do. So thank you so much and looking forward to having you with us again. Thank you. All the best. That brings us to the end of this week's Farmers Inside Track, powered by Meadow Feeds. Remember, if you love this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. From me, Dawn Numdu, our producer, Megan van de Fent, and the rest of the Food Form Zanzi team, have a great weekend. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.